As you read your Bible, I'm sure you've noticed that Scripture is full of imagery, metaphors, analogies, taking temporal things and applying spiritual truths to them. And it's really important that when we read Scripture, we know how to read these metaphors, know how to understand these analogies. Because Jesus, more often than not, spoke in a way that was veiled to those who were perishing. Jesus spoke in a way that would be clear to those with eyes to see and ears to hear. But to those who had not been given eyes to see and ears to hear, it was confusing. And even the simple truth fell on deaf ears, quite literally. And so for us, as we read through Scripture, it's really important to know what is Jesus talking about when he uses these analogies? What are the writers of Scripture talking about when they use human imagery? Because so often the temptation is to make those things literal and to apply them in a one-to-one manner, which is not really meant. And we're going to look at one of those today. We've been looking at the bread of life for the last several weeks. And Jesus uses seven metaphorical statements. So we're going to get into the number seven. It comes up a lot in the Gospel of John and also in Revelation. Seven is important. Seven is a number of perfection and it is a number of completeness. And we see those seven in John. We'll also see this morning in our text that Jesus mentions eating or feeding seven times. And so the things that Jesus repeats, we should pay attention to. And we should know what Jesus means by them so we can apply them appropriately. Because when Jesus says, it's only possible for a rich man to get into heaven as if a camel can go through the eye of a needle. Do we take that literally? Is Jesus really trying to shove a camel through the eye of a needle in order to get a rich man into heaven? Well, we kind of know that one on the surface. But when Jesus talks about the bread of life, is he taking that literally? Is, does he become a loaf of bread? Does he physically become something that we eat? This is a real debate throughout history. When we read something like Jesus walking on the water, is it literal or is that metaphorical? Because many have tried to explain away the miracles of Jesus just saying that they are metaphor, that they are allegory, that they don't mean what it says it means. And so with discerning minds, we need to be able to read scripture and recognize these things. And we talk about this quite often. And part of the reason why I'm doing a biblical theology study, our first two weeks, what we talked about is how to interpret scripture, what things we use to interpret scripture. This is so important. What are the tools we use? How do we recognize when Scripture is using metaphor? How do we recognize when Scripture is using analogy or when Scripture is speaking literally? Because this is where many people get tripped up. And this is where many people try to pull the Bible out of context and try to use it to to fit their agenda and say, see, Jesus said this here, but it contradicts what he said over here. We know that the Word of God cannot contradict itself. So how do we reconcile places where it seems like Jesus is speaking very literally? But in a sense, the truth that he's speaking is even deeper than any literal meaning we can assign to it. And so this is really important. I want you to pay attention to those things today. And I want you to consider them as you read through Scripture. And if you have questions about that, I'd love to talk to you about that. There are many here who would love to talk to you about how do we understand these things in Scripture? How do we understand the symbolism that is in Scripture? Because it is really important. Because what any good teacher does is they take the complex things and they explain them in a simple way. When you're teaching a child, you don't always have to start from the highest explanation. Very often you start in simple terms and you work your way up. And that's what Jesus does for us. Our minds are simple. We can't grasp heavenly truths. So he used words that we understand, like bread. He uses things we understand, like vines and branches. 
He uses things we understand like shepherd and sheep and doors. He uses these analogies so that we can better understand him in spiritual truths. And he speaks to us because we're his children. And he speaks to us like children so we can understand these things. And so I want you to understand these things. And this is really important when we get into our text this morning. Uh, So open your Bibles to John chapter 6. I'm going to read starting in verse 50, but our text this morning is going to be 52 through 59. Jesus says in verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in them. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. Not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you sent your son, sustained him in his humanity and gave him life so that we might have life in him. Thank you for this bread that came down from heaven. Lord, as we walk through this text this morning, help us to feast on this bread, to drink of this blood, to take this cup that is overflowing with abundance and life. Lord, teach us to rest in you. Teach us to abide in you. Teach us to live in you. Lord, make us people into the image of your Son, that we grow in our knowledge and love of Christ, that we grow in our love for one another, that our very lives and our speech and our thoughts and our desires reflect that of Christ. Lord, help us to understand simple things that can seem so complex. Help us to rest in the truth of the gospel, the good news of a Savior who shed his blood for the life of sinners. Lord, I just pray that this morning your spirit would speak and teach and encourage and found us on these truths, and may we rest in them as if our life depended on it because it does. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we hear a lot about bread. We hear a lot about blood. And so hopefully we get that this is a metaphor, and we're going to look at some of the dangers of uh, what would happen if you take this literally. But what is the metaphor of? I think initially our first reading is, of course, communion, right? We think of the flesh and the blood. Um, But we must go deeper than that, because we have to remember communion has not been instituted yet. And communion itself as a rite or a a ritual, as a process, is pointing to a greater spiritual truth. Yes, the communion will look back to this, but it's not just simply partaking of the bread and the wine. This is something much deeper, because those signify spiritual truths. And so we're going to go 
a little bit beyond that. Uh, this is spiritual rather than literal. What happens when you take this literally? Well, when the early church would say things like this, they would gather in what was, what was called um, love feasts, where they would come together and they would read the word together and they would eat together and they would uh, take of what we call communion together. The Romans would, would peek in and they'd look at them and they'd think they were crazy. Because they're talking about eating, eating flesh and drinking blood like these people are cannibals. And they, they got this reputation among Rome. These, this is some cannibal Jewish sect that feeds on the, the blood and the body of their dead. And many people in modern times have made the same charges against the church. And we know, I don't know about you, but we're not zombies. We're not vampires. This is not what we're doing. This is not literal. Some of you looked around. I don't know. Some of you are skeptical, maybe. Not, we're, we're not. But the, these are spiritual truths that the world can see as crazy. And let's be honest, the first time reading this, it seems a little crazy. And this is where the Jews find themselves. They're disputing amongst one another. So there's a couple things I want you to notice before we get into our text. Like I said earlier, between verse 50 and verse 58, Jesus uses the term eat or feed on this bread or on his flesh seven times. When Jesus tells you something seven times, pay attention. When Jesus tells you something seven times, he means something significant by it. And we're going to get into that this morning. First, it's important to think, okay, what is all this eating language? What does eating signify? So whenever we have a question in Scripture, whenever we don't understand what this particular thing means, we let Scripture interpret Scripture. In this particular instance, Jesus' words actually interpret themselves. Before we get to our text, look at verse 47. Verse 47 clearly says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. We've talked about that. We're going to get into that again. Whoever believes has eternal life. Look at verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life. Whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever feeds, whoever eats and drinks has eternal life. Jesus is equating these two things. Believing is the same as eating. Jesus is the bread of life. Eating is believing. And in the Christian world, it is not seeing is believing. We already talked about that is not faith. It is not seeing is believing. Eating is believing. And Jesus equates these two things. We don't have to look too far on what he means by eating. So this is a continual discourse on what it means to believe. And so Jesus' last words last week, he says, I will give for the life of the world my flesh. What do we say that the bread of life was? The bread of life is believing on Jesus Christ and his flesh given for sins. Last week, we talked about some big concepts. We talked about the sovereignty of God and, and human responsibility. We talked about penal substitutionary atonement. And if you missed that, if you weren't here, it's on the website. You can listen to it. Um, but we talked about Jesus's flesh being given for the forgiveness of sins, a substitution for what we deserve. And so that is where we find ourselves. He's continuing in that. That's what Jesus means. But what do the Jews hear? Let's pick up in verse 52. Then the Jews disputed amongst themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They made the, the correct logical assessment. They're, they're following Jesus' argumentation here. He came down from heaven. They were arguing about that. And now he's saying, you have to have uh, my flesh in order to live. And so they're disputing amongst one another. 
Last week they were grumbling. This word in the Greek, you'd miss it if you didn't know. This is a military term. They're having a war of words with each other. They were disputing with one another. Amongst each other, they're arguing about what Jesus really means. And Jesus, as always, he knows their thoughts. He knows what they're, they're thinking. They're not speaking to him. They're arguing amongst each other. But Jesus responds to them, knowing their hearts, knowing their minds. And he says this, verse 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. I love this. Jesus doubles down. Jesus is saying, okay, this makes you uncomfortable. Let me say it another way. Let me say it a stronger way. I love how unshakable he is. He had just said it in verse 50 and 51, and he reiterates it with even stronger language, and he ties it to the Son of Man. You remember our discussion on the Son of Man? This title of fulfilling the prophecy in Daniel is the, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, who is to be judge and king and ruler of all. And so it is his flesh you have to eat. It is his blood you have to drink. Everything is tied to this anointed one, this one who would be blessed by the Father, who would come in the very throne room of God and be given authority by the Ancient of Days. He is the one you need to eat of. He is the one you need to drink of. And I, standing before you, am he. Jesus is connecting all of this. He's connecting their scriptures. He's connecting their their discomfort and pointing it all to himself. And then he adds an additional element here. All this time we've been talking about manna, we've been talking about eating, but now he talks about drinking. Not only must you eat, but you must drink. And so this would make a Jew really uncomfortable. It should make anybody uncomfortable when someone starts talking about drinking blood. But this should make a Jew very uncomfortable, and I'm going to show you why. Turn, turn to Leviticus chapter 17. There's two really important things we need to see here in Leviticus. So Leviticus chapter 17, I'm going to read verses 10 and 11. First you're going to see the prohibition, and then you're going to see the explanation. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 10. If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person. You don't know what that means, but that's a very bad thing. I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. Okay, so first of all, do not drink blood. You or anyone who is in your house. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. There is very life in the blood. And so by the shedding of blood, the only way you were to shed blood like that was to make atonement for sins. Not to to drink of it in the way that the pagans did and ingest it in a way of worship, but recognizing that it signifies the atonement for sins. It is actually a covering for your souls. And so Jesus is saying something that, that he knows will be offensive to their ears. He can't be saying something literally because he's not going to go against the very commands of God. It was Christ himself who gave these commands. It is Father, Son, and Spirit who agree when they give these words to Moses and what he requires of his people. So he's not going to go against his own word. He's not going to tell them to drink blood literally. But he wants them to think about it, what it signifies. Because for the Jews in the sacrificial system, what they would do is they would slaughter the animal. 
they would slaughter the animal, they would cut them so the blood would run out, and they would sprinkle the blood on the altar or cover the, the altar with the blood. And that blood, the life within that animal, would transfer from the animal to the, to the person who had committed the sin. It was a transference of, co- of covering, of atonement, of forgiveness for sins. And then they would cut up the animal, and then they would eat of it. So the sacrificial system that was to get them to think about their own sin actually included the blood and the flesh. And so Jesus is drawing on that here, and this is really important. We, I don't want us to, to miss this. But just like our conversation a few weeks ago, in living waters, living waters, are, Jesus is not literally a fountain in himself. But those who come to him and those who drink will have living waters. Those who come to him will have the flesh that is given for sins and the blood that is the covering for sins. And so Jesus is appealing to the Jews here and connecting himself to the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. I know it's a lot and I could go on further, but hopefully you're, you're following along with, with me here. Uh, the other danger of taking this completely literally, not only would, would scripture contradict itself if Jesus is saying, take of this blood literally, but there is a damaging doctrine called transubstantiation, another big word that basically many believe, and within the Roman Catholic Church, this is what they believe, that every time you take communion, you are literally sacrificing Jesus. You are literally taking his, his blood, every time it is blessed, it's turned into his blood and turned into his body, and you're eating and drinking Jesus literally. So you're going against the commands of God, and you are making a sacrifice of Christ every time you partake which we read this morning in our time of prayer in Hebrews chapter 9, and it says that we cannot do that. He died once for all. And so it's really important that we understand that this is not a continual sacrificing. And this is not something that we can take in literally. This is, this is figurative. There's another thing that you would not get if you read this in the English, and many times we'll have conversations like, well, why do you need to take Greek and why do you need to take Hebrew? And you don't want to get caught up and become theology nerds and not be able to have real conversations. But there are so many things in the original language that really helps us. These verbs are in the aorist tense, the eat and drink. That means it is a once for all action, something that happens in the past that that is complete. When you see this in verse 53, you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of his blood. It's something that you do once and that has effect that does not change. This is similar language when Jesus says, uh, come and see, or repent and believe, come and eat. This is, this is a similar understanding to what we understand about justification. That if we believe in faith one time, that has effect, and it does not change. Those who eat, those who drink, they will live. They will be justified by this eat and this drink. And it has to be with a sacrifice that is alive. Because when you eat of a sacrifice that's dead, it can give you life for a time. But it cannot continually give you life. The reason this is different is because the sacrifice we eat of, the flesh and blood we eat of, is of our Savior who's alive. And if he's alive, there is life in him. And he continues to feed us. And we'll get into that in the next verse. That which is alive keeps giving life. That's why it's so important that he rose from the dead. Because if he did not raise from the grave, if he was still there, if someone faked his death somehow, there would be no power in his flesh and blood. 
There would be no significance in what he offers. But because he is alive, when you take him in, you take on his death in the flesh. You take on his blood that he poured out for sins. You, you, you take on his atoning sacrifice for you. But you also take on the life he lives. He conquered sin and he conquered death and he rules as king. So when we partake of this sacrifice, of this flesh and this blood, we're eating the bread of life, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We are partaking of something that is truly life. Because Jesus says, if you don't eat this way, if you don't believe in me, like he says, if you don't believe in this bread, if you don't take this bread, what does he say at the end? You have no life in you. If you don't eat of this bread, eat of this flesh and drink of this blood, you have no life in you. There is no life anywhere else but in me. This is a strong statement. And it's going to get even more strong. We're just one verse in. I guess i got to move. Uh, verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And we saw this as a parallel to verse 47. Whoever feeds and drinks. It's the same as the one who believes on my flesh. But there's a, a few changes in the text to address. Again, uh, in the original language, there are two words for eating that are used here. The Greek language has like nine but this is really important because up until 53, there is one word that's used. It's the, the most general word for eating. It's phago. It's just a regular word that means to eat, to consume, something that you do one time. It's applied to the manna. So you just, you, you eat in this particular way. But this other word, trogo, is a stronger word. It means to feed, to gnaw, to enjoy. It's a slower process. It's to savor. It's to take in and digest. And it's a continual process. So in 53, we get this one-time eating, but in 54, we get a process. And this is why the ESV uses two different words here. It's why the ESV uses eat and feed, because feed is more of a continual process. The other thing, again, this is important, trust me, the verb tense changes. In 53, it was something that happened in the past. But in 54, it's, it's present tense. It's continual. So in the last verse, you get eat one time, and it's a concluded act. But here you get something that's continual. Feed. Feed and drink in a continual manner. It's the same bread from heaven that once you eat it once, you continue to eat it. And you continue to drink of that blood. It's not just something that happens one time. We know this in our lives. If we only eat or drink once a week, we would be very weak people. And if we only eat or drink of Christ once a week, we'll be very weak Christians. And this is American Christianity, is it not? Go to church, check off a box. I've patted myself on the back. I've got my spiritual food for the week and I'm good. This is something that you must eat of continually. So am I saying American Christians are weak? By and large, yes. Uh, if they even are Christians. Many people are going through the motions and have no idea what it means to feed on Christ. No idea what it means to have him nourish their soul day after day. To wake up and feel like without Christ, I can't make it another moment. Without Christ, life has no meaning. Without Christ, I am nothing. And I feel sad for people who think Christianity is anything other than that. And I want to get in this morning. We're going to look at some of the implications in this text of what it means to be a Christian and how Jesus helps inform us of that. He goes on again. He's, he said this four times so far. 
and I will raise him up on the last day. Four times in just chapter six alone, I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise him up on the last day. Again, if Jesus repeats himself, pay attention. Why is Jesus saying this? Because the one who begins it will be faithful to complete it. He wants you to know that that the final say is mine. And in an amazing way here, we see the fullness of salvation. In 53, we see justification, meaning if you believe on Christ, you have been saved. We also see sanctification. If you continue to feed, you are being saved. And we also see glorification. If you remain in me, you will be saved. The fullness of salvation, past, present, and future in two verses, all in the person of Jesus Christ. Eat on me, continue to feed on me, and I will raise you up to life everlasting. Our salvation is our identity, and Jesus is laying this out for you. Past, present, and future, it is me. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and you can take these promises to the bank. So he says them over and over and over again because he knows we're slow of hearing. And he knows we're simple. And we know he knows we need things repeated to us. So how do we know this is possible? How do we know all this is possible? How can we believe Jesus? Because he says, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. It's the truth. For us, that means if we're looking for truth anywhere else, if we're looking for life anywhere else, if we're looking for salvation anywhere else, it is a lie. There is no nourishment outside of Christ. There is nothing that our souls need. Our deepest needs are in Christ. True food. True drink. I want you to think about this for a moment. What happens when we eat? When we eat, we take something that is not a part of us, something that is outside of us, and we ingest it. As we ingest it and as we digest it, it becomes part of us. We take something that is outside of us and it actually becomes part of us. And as it works its way into our, our bloodstream and everything else that goes beyond my medical knowledge, it actually changes our physiological makeup. We literally are what we eat. And when we eat of things, we become that. You eat too much fatty food, you get these. You eat too much pasta, you get this. But when you eat of true food, eternal food, It changes who you are. It gets within you and changes your very spiritual makeup. And you become what you eat. And this is really good news. When you eat of true food, eternal food, it sustains you for eternity. Manna was not true food. Even though it came from heaven, it could only satisfy for a moment. And our world is full of things that satisfy for a moment. There are a lot of false gospels out there. There are a lot of things out there that tells you that there is good news in other things. If you just have more information, if you just have more pleasure, more good things, if you just be true to yourself, if you just pamper yourself, then you will find nourishment. Then you will find fulfillment. That is what living really is. Any of us who pursued that for more than five minutes knows that that's a lie. It is not true food. That is not true drink. And that's why we teach the word of God here. That's why we spend time in scripture. That's why we look at the difficult doctrines. That's why we're not concerned with entertaining you. Sorry, your whole lives are entertainment. I know this. 
We want you to have true drink, true food. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the God-man who came from heaven, the bread which gives eternal life, the blood which covers sins for eternity, the life everlasting in him. This is true food. This is true drink. His death, burial, and resurrection, he is Lord of all. This is what should sustain us as Christians. This is what, what, we, sh- what we should feed on. And if we just feed you cute stories and anecdotes and big shows and presentations and acrobats, and yes, they do do that in churches, it's the equivalent of spiritual junk food. Why would we do that? Why would we give that to you when Jesus offers true drink and true food? Why would, why would we give you gruel? You can have a a spiritual feast. Next week, we're going to see the words of the disciples. And they say, where would we go? Where else could we go? You have the words of eternal life. You ever meditate on that? You ever think about that? Where else could I go? Where else can I look for food? Where else can I look for salvation? Jesus has the words of eternal life. What better feast can there be? This is how we should feel. This is what should... Come within us when we, when we read these texts. Yeah, where else can I go? The world offers a lot of versions of what the truth is. The one who eats, the one who feeds on this true food and drink, that one also abides. Verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. The one who feeds abides. The one who eats feeds and abides. This is the beautiful picture of union with Christ. Abiding in him, continual fellowship, life in him, marked by continual eating and drinking. This continual ingesting of Christ, continual reminder of the gospel, continual remembrance of his burial, death, resurrection, new life, and our new life in him. That's why Jesus uses the analogy of the vine and the branches in John 15. Uh, one of those examples that, that we love where he tells us, apart from me, you can do nothing. I am the vine. You are the branches. Feed on me. I will nourish you. I will give you everything you need. But apart from the vine, the branch will die and wither. And the branch that lives is never detached from the vine. And so all of these analogies are so important. We'll get there when we get to chapter 15 again sometime in the way distant future. But this picture of abiding in Christ is not something you can step in and out of. It's not something, hey, I just, I'm going to put on Christ today and I'm going to step out of him tomorrow. Um, or just something I can put Christ aside when it, when it becomes convenient for me, I'll, I'll go back over there. Abiding is continual. It is, it is living. It is this complete need like the branch needs the vine. Like we need bread, like we need food, like we need water, we should come to him. And the abundant life that people love to talk about is the riches of Christ. The grace and mercy that we receive in him, new life given by uniting in his finished work. And this is what feeds the saints. This is our food. This is what sustains us. This is what the entire letter of Ephesians is about. And I want you to turn there to chapter 1. There's a lot of people who love this text. I know it's my wife's favorite text. I'm going to read a big chunk because this is exactly what Paul is getting at. What does it mean to abide in Christ? What does abiding in Christ look like? What does that mean for the believer? What should we rejoice in? What should we rest in? Have no fear. Paul lays it out for us. 
I want everyone to turn there. I, I don't see, I see some people not turning in their Bibles. I really want everyone to turn there because if you cannot rest in Ephesians 1, I don't know what you can rest in. This is what it means to live an abundant life in Christ. This is what it means to be a believer. This is what we rest on. Listen to this description, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. There is nothing that God offers that we do not have in Christ. Amen? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He knew us. He knew our sin. Knew we are not holy. We are not blameless. But he loved us. And the spiritual blessings include holiness, purity, blameless, spotlessness before him. And it is out of love that he predestined us for adoption. The riches include our holiness and our family identity adopted into his body. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. The father's will is that we should be his in Christ Jesus to the praise of his glorious grace. And it gives him glory. Amen. That our riches and our blessings give God glory with which he has blessed us in the beloved. All our blessings are in Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We are bought with a price that 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 flesh and that blood signifies our redemption, our salvation, our forgiveness, the riches of God's grace. The things that the angels long to see is the price that was paid for our sin, which he lavished on us, lavished on us. What a big powerful word that just makes us think of of, of royalty and riches and it should our father gives good gifts and he gives them abundantly this is what he lavishes on us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in christ this is a mystery why is there sin how can we even know him what is this whole ministry of Jesus Christ. It is through his work and his will that we understand these things. And when we understand them, we are never the same. And it is according to his purpose. And it is all in Christ. You cannot avoid Christ in this. You see why he says, eat, feed, abide. And this is all in the fullness of time, verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. We are part of God reconciling all things to himself. This sinful, cursed world that is affected by our sin is being reconciled, and we're part of that. He is the firstborn from among the dead. He is the the, the firstborn of the new creation. We are part of that new creation. And as we see lives transformed, we see the glory of God being displayed in his work in us that will one day be displayed in everything. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. This is an inheritance better than anything the world can offer, better than any temporary abundance that people think of. This is eternal. This is imperishable, as Peter tells us. 
and is according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. All that Jesus sent his spirit on to seal it. To guard it, to keep it, to keep us. And this inheritance, all of these rich spiritual blessings. The spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Until we acquire the possession of it, to the praise of his glory. We have an inheritance. And there is nothing that some prosperity gospel with, with, with temporary mammon can fulfill. This is imperishable riches held by the Holy Spirit on account for us because of Christ. We can abide in him because this is true. Because our salvation is one that is, that is cosmic and outside of our understanding, yet is as real now as the moment when we take hold of it. And it is in him who we find our life. Back in John 6, Jesus goes one step further. Those who eat, those who feed, they will abide and they will have life forever. Verse 57, and as the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. Now, you notice Jesus has just thrown the analogy out the window. He's no longer talking about flesh and blood, no longer talking about eating and drinking something else. He's telling you... Me, the Father sent me. Whoever feeds on me will also live because of me. Everything goes back to Christ. The living Father has life in himself. So in his humanity, there was not one moment where Jesus' life did not need the Father. In his humanity, he was perfectly dependent, completely dependent on the life of the Father because the Father sent him. And just as Jesus is dependent on the Father every moment of his life, we are dependent on Christ. Because just like the Son got his life from the Father, we get our life from the Son. There is no Son without the Father, and there is no Christian without Christ. If we we look for life anywhere else, we won't find it. Do we believe that? Do we live like that? This is a real question for us. You have life because of me. Jesus is our source of life, and this can't be overstated. But how much of our lives do we live apart from Christ? Let's be honest. Yeah, I put on the Christian face and the Christian outfit on Sunday morning, and I do the Christian things around my Christian friends. But is Christ my life at work? Do my coworkers? Know that my life comes from Christ. And my coworkers know that I have no life apart from him. Do my business practices, the way I treat others, reflect this abiding in Christ that my life comes from him? What about when things are difficult? What about when the world just really disappoints you? Do we remember that our life is in Christ? Do we remember that we live because of him, that the same power from the Father that sustained him and his humanity sustains us? What about when things get really good? When everything goes the way we think it should, do we remember that those gifts are from him? That our very life is, is from him? Do we know that in him we find our life and breath and our being, our very existence is from him? These are real questions to ask us because... and. 
for most of us, we are trained in American Christianity to be a Christian when it's expected of us, when everyone's looking, and set it aside and do what, do what we do the rest of the time. But is that what Jesus is talking about here? Is that abiding and finding true life in him? One of my favorite verses that I have to preach to myself over and over and over again, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Every one of us should just be broken at those words. It's no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me. Jesus told us in John chapter 4 that it is his very food to do the will of God. That When he went without food, doing the will of God fed him. When we feed on Christ, we do the will of the Father. And we live in him. This is living. Feeding on the Son. Reminding ourselves of the truth that the bread of life came down to earth, took on flesh, was tempted, tried, abused, spat on, marred, scarred, beaten, and took on the wrath of God on the cross for our sin so that we might have life in him. Let us never tire of the details of the gospel. Let us continue to remind each other the truth of this, that without Christ there is no life. Apart from him there is no living. And he closes this up one more time in case you missed it. You think I'm being repetitive. It's because Jesus is. He wants you to get this. Verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Again, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Again, you'd miss this in English, but these two Greek words come up again. The first one that we talked about, phago. The ones who ate, the fathers who ate in the wilderness, they ate in the wilderness one time. But those who feeds on me, trogo, that, that, that second Greek word, that continual feeding, those are the ones who live. Not the ones who eat one time and it passes through your body, but those who continually feed in a spiritual way. They will live forever. Here, I want to draw this all together. I want you to catch this. Pay attention. The end of 58, he says, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The same phrasing that is used in Genesis 3.22. Anyone know what's going on in Genesis chapter 3? Everything's good for chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. It all goes to hell. It does. Genesis 3.22, God banishes them from the garden. It says, you cannot eat of the tree of life anymore unless you should live forever. You know what got them in trouble in the first place? Eating. Death entered in the world through eating. You know what brings life into the world? Eating. The tree of life that we have been banished from because of our own sin, because in Adam we all sin, now we can have life in Christ. Now we can eat and have eternal life. Now we can eat and live forever. The tree of life walked on earth. The tree of life gave himself so that we could feed and drink forever. Don't believe me? Turn to Revelation 22. Not right now. Read it later. Revelation 22, it's described the the tree of life that is sitting by the streams of living water. It has 12 kinds of fruit, and its fruit is the healing of the nations. So when Jesus came to restore all things, from the very beginning, when the fall happens, 
When sin comes into the world to the very end, the, the, the consummation and restoration of all things, it points to Christ. Death came by eating. Living comes by eating. And those who eat will eat of that tree of life forever. And its fruit will be the healing of the nations. Every tongue, tribe, and nation that comes to him will eat and live forever. This is me. This is the entire gospel summed up in me. John throws in his little detail at the end. Jesus said these things at the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. It's almost like we forgot what happened. Remember, he fed the 5,000. They crossed the Sea of Galilee. They found him in Capernaum. Where was Jesus when they found him? In synagogue, in church, in the assembly of the people. He was in worship. This is a sermon. Jesus was in the synagogue teaching this. All of your scriptures look to me. This is what worship sounded like with Jesus and the disciples. Unfolding the riches of God's mercies and God's blessings toward those who would, who would believe for us. And we get a small picture with that sermon look like so how we conclude this is probably a summary of the entire message of john this is what john said the whole reason i wrote this so that you will believe and you will have life everlasting eat of me believe and have life everlasting those who eat has eternal life those who feed has eternal life it's a quality that is within you when you want to eat and feed and abide it is because the lord has put eternal life in you and you will live forever eat live feast abide believe there is no other life there is no other true food and i would just challenge you as believers know this rest in this remind yourself of this remind each other of this that this is true food this is true drink this is where we find our life and life everlasting nowhere else and be careful be careful of the false gospels out there be careful of the false messages out there that you can find truth and fulfillment somewhere other than christ because it is a lie and anytime we are pointing people to things other than christ to find their life to believe in it is a lie and if you don't know Christ, eat, feed, abide, live. He will save you. He will sustain you. And he will raise you up on the last day. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for unveiling this to our weak and feeble minds. Thank you that truth's too wonderful for us to even speak of and put into words. Lord, I just pray that you make this clear to everyone here. I just pray that you help us to find our identity in Christ, our life in Christ, come to him for our nourishment, and continually feed on the good news of the gospel. May it nourish our soul. May it stir our affections. May it cause us to sing. May it remind us that we have life and life everlasting. We have been made new in Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for the good news, real good news, true good news, which is true food and true drink. And let us be people who come to a fount that never runs dry and sing and rejoice that we have been made alive in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.